0: Welcome to Reset, the new 74 podcast series hosted by Pelin Akın Özalp on perceiving challenges as empowering opportunities to make the future brighter. Pelin Akın Özalp is currently serving as vice chairwoman of Akfan Infrastructure Holding and is a member of the board at Turkey Business Women's Association and the Marine Environment Protection Association. Özalp is also chairwoman at the advisory board of the Contemporary Turkish Studies Chair founded at the London School of Economics in 2010. She has participated in different working groups in the Foreign Economic Relations Board of Turkey at the Spanish Business Council, British Business Council and US Business Council. Join Pelin Akın Özal in conversation
1: with opinion leaders, entrepreneurs and change makers, sharing the milestones and decisions that led to the incredible shifts in their lives. Hi Sarah, welcome to my podcast. It is a very new podcast series called The Reset, and you're my first guest.
0: Hello, Pelin. How are you? you. I'm really excited. I'm really excited to be a part of this. Thank you for offering me to be a part of your podcast.
1: Thank you for coming over, Sarah. Sarah, for those who don't know you, they'll have to check your website, SarahAliafi.com. But before they do, we should warn them, they may come across a Sperm. Yes, you heard me right, a sperm, with a beautiful photo of Sarah attached to his tail.
0: Let's say it's like a, in a biological sense, not in an <laughs> other type of way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is Sarah Eliafi. She's Lebanese, and this is where her story begins. She's very passionate about her country and the Middle East. She studied public policy in Harvard Kennedy School of Government and jumped directly to the political scene as a social media activist queen, which is what we'll be talking about today. How does the social media become a tool to change the destiny of a country? Right, Sarah?
0: I mean, it sounds amazing. I'd like to meet that person.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She's amazing, let me tell you that. (laughs)
0: Uh, So,
1: how would you describe your profession? Would you call yourself a political activist or a public policy consultant? What would you say?
0: So, um, first of all, thank you, um, Pälin. This is um, this is actually really exciting for me. Um, and just to go a little bit on the story of the sperm, because I love to talk about this. I really do, and I'm and I'm and I'm very proud that you brought it up. There is a um, there is a wonder to that I have you know thought about since I was a child, which is like from a gazillion prospects we won the race of the sperm so we need to congratulate ourselves this was (laughs) once upon a time we lived in the gonads of our fathers and also (laughs) the uterus of our moms and then here we are having achieved life the chances of that apparently are ridiculously small that I thought for my birthday I would just dwell upon how rare it is for life to come forth in this world. And uh, so, congratulations, Péline, to both you and I. Um, we <laughs> and to have, everyone who's listening to us today. Yes, you are now part of this magnificent world, making a change. So, uh, so back to your question. I have been described by several news outlets uh, as a public policy consultant, and although the consultancy is true, my expertise lies in public policy. So that's what I studied and that's what I worked in. And, um, public policy very interestingly does not have a translation in Arabic, which is, uh, you know, the language of my, of my country, uh, maybe because we don't do any public policy, (laughs) but, um, so it's basically public policy really is like the course of action that we create or enact as a government in response to problems. So any real world problem, there is usually a policy that answers to that. So it's people like me who can put forth potential solutions through public policies to problems. But um, so that is the line of work that I do. I specialized in um, renewable energy and waste. But I also because I uh, have written about so many different topics that sort of that sort of um, took a life of its own so different different opinions that i've been sharing on social media I'm lucky enough and fortunate enough to have seen that it resonates with a lot of people, which is why I have also that social media presence as you described it, but it all stems from the um from the desire and the the will to serve the public good and answer to problems through the art of public policy.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're definitely going to come back to that. But let's hear a little bit about your background first. Uh-huh. So your grandfather was one of the founding figures of Lebanon, and he served as the Prime Minister 12 times, which is the highest number ever. Do you think that influenced your passion for politics?
0: Yeah, you know, it's true. He, um, and he was an independent. He was an independent. And something as well. To say, yeah, he was an independent. He never belonged to a political party, and he never formed a political party, and there is a reason for that. He didn't, he didn't believe that that's the way you serve a country. Um, he did it through the very passionate, his very passionate lawmaking and uh, uh, he is the one who gave the voting rights to women in 1952. This wow. Is that he, this is something that he toiled for all his life when he was a student at Sorbonne University. And he was actually the first Arab to ever uh, attend the very, you know, prestigious Sorbonne University in Paris. He, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he wrote a PhD on women's rights in Islam. And wow. was basically, he was basically clamoring for the idea that, it's, that you cannot subjugate half of the population and expect positive results. We need to uphold the rights of women. And that is something that is a, uh, a civic duty, but also a religious duty. And um, so he ended up giving the voting rights to women. But to answer your question, I didn't know any of that till I was an adult and I was already in politics. Like, Uh it's it's very interesting that I was actually raised in a household where politics were never discussed. I knew who my grandfather was, of course, but I wasn't ever walked through anything that he did in detail. I, I would be talked about, like people, strangers would talk to me about my grandfather and people would come up to me and tell me things about my grandfather, but it didn't happen at home. So I lived in a very politically sterile environment and it was only until I was 16 years old that I picked up a book. I will never forget that book because Uh it's a book that changed my life. It's a book that's written by uh, Aaron Bregman and Jihan about called The 50 Years War which talks about the entire Arab-Israeli conflict. And it changed my life because after I read, I couldn't put it down and I kept talking to everybody about it and saying, how are you not, how are you not doing anything about the injustice in the world? How are you mm-hmm. not, not mobilizing? How do you sleep at night? How do you, this, is, this was me at 16 years old and, wow. I, and I never left politics since that day. So, um, so, so, no, my grandfather is not a direct influence because it happened before I understood, um, before I understood the, the depth of, and, and meaningful depth of his work. But it's, it definitely um, get, put wings underneath my wings if you say that uh, I am so proud to be part of that lineage and I am so thankful. For everything that he's done, not only as his granddaughter but as a woman living in this country. Before
1: we move on, do you remember anything from when your country was at war?
0: Um, you know, I I was I spent my childhood the first nine years of my childhood in Saudi Arabia, um, and um, I only came moved back to Lebanon uh, at the very beginning of the 90s. So mm-hmm. I remember the summer in Lebanon, and i remember so i didn't live the bombing of of the of the civil war, but I lived the consequences of the bombing, so I remember not having electricity and not having water, and also I remember very weirdly taking a bath with my cousins with the uh, uh, while our mothers, so their mother and my mother was like heating water over a stove and coming and like splashing us with it Um, (laughs) because because there was no running water and because obviously uh, um, this is a war-torn country so I remember there not being any water, not being any electricity and also I remember the refugees I remember the refugees and I remember just the sheer destruction So, and and also telling my mother um, you know that because as a child, I don't understand what's happening, right? And But as a child also, you don't have a benchmark of anything else if that's all you know. But I know that in Saudi Arabia, we have running water and electricity. So my question is like, why do we come here <laughs> if, there's no, if there's no water and electricity? And then my mother said something like, I'm here to see my mom, my grandma, who's now passed. But, and I said, oh, okay. And then in that case, I understand. Yeah. But, um, it's only later when I read that book at age 16 and I was like, <laughs> you hey, hey guys, how do you sleep at night? So, um, so yeah.
1: You've been also selected as one of the hundred influential Lebanese figures around the globe, right? Oh. Tell us about it. Why did
0: they choose you? I don't know. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, um, you know, it's very funny. I, it's really funny. I was thinking about this two days ago about these lists, you know, like, like 30 under 30 and, and, and 100 most powerful women and 100. So it's true. Um, I, th- the, I think the book was called, uh, 100, the 100 and then 100 of the most influential Lebanese around the globe. I don't like such lists, to be really honest with you, because I, I've, I've seen so many lists of, uh, of different people um, where I looked at the list and I was like, nope, that person doesn't deserve to be on that list. So I've always t- taken those lists with a grain of salt because I don't understand if there's politics behind it or the depth of how much we actually know a person. But yes, I was, I was part of, of that. And I think the reason why The authors of the book, um, which is an organization here in Lebanon, chose me, is because they were um, particularly touched by the idea of a young woman um, carrying such controversial, not controversial, but such, uh, it's not controversial, that's not not really how people refer to me, but such uh, controversial. Hard, hardcore, hardcore issues, and 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 fighting, uh, fighting for them day in and day out, and uh, and arguably, hopefully, uh, getting traction. I think, mm-hmm. uh, I think you know, Pelin, and this is something that, this is something that also, um, not disappoints me, but but I hope, I hope that we can change in our world. It's the idea of powerlessness behind everybody's, uh, everybody's psyche. A lot of people believe that they are not enough to make a difference, or they are not strong enough or powerful enough or, or meaningful enough to be able to put a dent in the system and um that is a that is a narrative that accompanies all human beings around the world so what ends up happening is if we all adopt this narrative well nothing gets done and Mm -hmm. but imagine if every single one of us woke up and believed that they had the the, um, the weight to be able to put a dent in 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 the way the world works we could, uh, we would be living in a comp- on a completely different planet within a week. You know, yeah. But, but, but the the biggest the biggest impediment to progress, and and uh, positive change, and uh, and and development in the most positive way, is our is the idea of our own powerlessness. So I, so I think that maybe is what earned me my spot in that book because I, uh, as they, I think have said, I, uh, I, I take the fight, f- I fit, I take the fight forward every day. No, yeah,
1: but I think your language and your humor is definitely what we don't come across in political scenes as much, like the, at your website or your um, blog or your social media the things you share is definitely uh, is not
0: common in a political arena. You know, I think thank that's you. what makes you unique. You no, know, I mean, really, thank you for saying that. And I guess what, I guess what I, what I would really like to do, right, is to sort of demystify uh, the boredom behind policy, right? Policy is so boring. And it is nobody, nobody like no child is like I want to be a person who like types on an on a computer really boring papers all day. This is no, they would want to save the world. That's how they would. Well, exactly, exactly, right? Uh, And you know, we live in a troubled place. Okay, most people, even like most people, know that this that this world could be run better and this place could be better and and that is what drives that is what drives the human race progress doesn't work doesn't wait for anybody progress doesn't wait no matter what people think no matter how much people try to actually halt progress it doesn't wait for anybody that is the one constant thing about our planet and, you know, same thing when people say, save the planet. The planet doesn't need to be saved. The planet is going to be here no matter what you do. Save yourself, you know? So, right. so to answer what you're saying, that is a story that I decided that I wanted to, con- to contribute to. I am on this earth to take part in a beautiful human story, as are you and the best people in my opinion are those who are able to elevate the human conversation to a compassionate loving humorous level where and where people will end up hurting less and effortlessly be able to create more happiness as a result of this open-mindedness and i think that is unfortunate that those who are in the business of making a change in the world, the people in policy, decide to do it with no compassion and no humor and no love. Mm -hmm. You know? I mean, if only people could understand that intelligence and progress can benefit the human condition only if it gets imbued with love and humor. Otherwise, it's like a broken light. It cannot enlighten. Love is the only human condition that can truly advance civilization. And love sees no differences between all sentient beings. And I'm not the first to say it, nor should I ever be the last, but I know that I belong to a generation of people who will be able to prove it. So let us take back public policy from the boring clause of the establishment and let us instill it with love, compassion, and humor and science and, And let us take it forward. And you know, because the human brain is simply not formatted to learn and change through boring hatred. The human brain needs movement. It needs color. It needs music. It needs happiness. It needs laughter. It needs love. It needs love. People have no problem accepting this to be the truth for literally everything else in life from consumerism to technology. Look at how they try to sell us like a, like a can of, of soft drink. Look at how they try to sell us any type, of, uh, any type of accessory that we don't even need. Look at how they try to sell us a t-shirt that we don't need. Why do we put so much movement, color, music, happiness, and laughter in useless products, but we don't do it in the most useful products, which is literally the change we see in our eyes that comes through policy. People have no problem accepting this to be the truth for all of this. Why should it be different for politics? Why should politics be pervaded with humorless plans, gray suits, gray-faced men who actually have zero compassion and zero love and zero humor? Have you ever read a policy paper? I don't know why more people don't kill themselves afterwards. Like, it's the worst writing on the planet. And... (laughs) And that's the main problem with public policy, that it lacks so much creativity to have any lasting impact. And that's the predominant reason why important matters around the globe don't get the attention they deserve, because they're always presented in such a boring, mundane, dry, gray-faced manner. It definitely does. I've not heard anyone in my life talk about
1: policy in such a way, Sarah. So it definitely makes you unique in that sense. While talking about stories and talking about your passion, that video that you put together with Nadine Labaki, and it was narrated by Kate Blanchett. Oh my God, it was so powerful. Describing what happened in Lebanon on 4th of August, that was the most touching video I've seen in a very long time. I'm so sorry about what happened on 4th of August. As the video says, it is the biggest non-nuclear explosion in 21st century. So what do you think actually happened back then?
0: So thank you. Yeah, actually, um, so my friend, uh, she, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to call her my friend, but she is a, she's a talented Oscar-nominated director. Um, the, first, the first Middle Eastern woman to be nominated to the Oscars, actually, my, uh, Nadine Lebaki. She called me up and she offered me to co-write with her the text for a short film to do about August 4th. Uh, August 4th is actually the largest non-nuclear explosion in the 21st century, but also, uh, arguably of all time. Um, Mm -hmm. and we ended up writing the script to this because, you know, what happened that the, we ended up writing the script to this and Nadine, um, used amazing footage that was shot by so many survivors. And so, yeah, all the footage absolutely. that you will see—all the footage that you will see in that video—actually comes from um, the survivors who shot all of these videos of their own personal, um, uh, their own personal story that day. And uh, we were incredibly fortunate to have Kate Blanchett agree to collaborate and to narrate the words that we wrote. Uh, obviously Nadine knows Kate Blanchett through her work you know they are both um oscar oscar nominated oscar winners kate blanchett is an oscar winner at nadine abekasis an oscar i've never been nominated to the oscars but i'd like to say that <laughs> i that i won i won the prize of friendship when i was in 6th grade does that count for <laughs>
1: <laughs> you will one day you will we do trust in you on a serious note what do you think happened back then in
0: beirut that day well, that is the question to be asked. To um, that is the question to be asked um, in in the court of law, because we need to know. We need to know what happened. Um, there is a port with a with a warehouse called Warehouse Number Twelve, which apparently is out of like out of anyone's reach. Supposedly, nobody. Nobody could have access to it, and it was filled with this explosive ammonium nitrate there is a, There is a debate about how much because the ammonium nitrate that arrived in the port is two thousand seven hundred and fifty tons, which is an incredibly enormous amount of ammonium nitrate, but allegedly, according to experts and according to um, you know different um, different videos that have scientifically weighed in on the the explosion it was much less that actually exploded so which means that over the years the the um you know the the politicians in the country were getting rid of the ammonium nitrate and the question is also where the hell did that ammonium nitrate go did it go to did it go to power the war next door with Syria or is it hidden in other warehouses around the country? But, um, but regardless of that, um, there is blood on the hands of every single Lebanese official, regardless of what happened, regardless of who truly, truly is the person who ignited the, because ammonium nitrate doesn't just explode out of thin air. You need an ignition and it's very difficult for it to actually explode. So, so what happened? Yeah, we need to know. Uh, but we know that regardless of what happened, every single one of those politicians is guilty, with blood on their hands, for having destroyed half of the capital. Half of the capital has been destroyed, Pelin, and wow. and and people have been left homeless. Um, so sad. People have lost their loved ones. People have lost their eyesight, their limbs, their, you know, you know, something something, very sad, something that I have learned, you know, how, when we watch something on TV and it's like a horrendous explosion or disaster or catastrophe, they always give you the number of dead and the number of wounded, right? Well, yeah, but, but I mean, even because people tend to focus on the number of dead, like that's the most devastating part. Yeah. Can you imagine the devastation of, the wounded being like blinded, being yeah. having a hand cut off. Like it wounded is not just a scratch on the face. You know, it's a, I mean, it's part of it, but it's not that it's the wounded will have to live with something that is an unimaginable type of anguish and grief. And the and those who lost loved ones are going to have with it, are going to have to live with an unimaginable, unimaginable, um, Amount of grief, but and and then all those children and all those adults who are deeply traumatized. That when you know, we had a storm uh the other day in Beirut, and you know, storm, you get lightning and thunder, and the number of people who were commenting the next day that that they couldn't speak, they couldn't sleep because they had such high levels of anxiety, and their child entered a panic attack and they had to go into a type of um a type of fear fear that they have never experienced in their bodies that is a crime against humanity you know Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it was
1: it was so unexpected because i remember like when i came to visit you we literally walked
0: in front of that port yes like
1: anyone could have been there like is it was so unexpected so so sad
0: and also the just uh, one more thing the impact of this explosion is really, really far more devastating than one can imagine. Not only in terms of the number of casualty and wounded and the destruction, but also the disappearance of architectural heritage of the capital, the destruction Mm. of the already fragile infrastructure. We are already one of the highest polluted regions in the world, Um, not to mention the social fabric that was already weakened by 15 years of war and 30 years of corruption. And an unparalleled economic and financial crisis, an unparalleled like this is really, really an unimaginable, an unimaginable um, nightmare that my compatriots have had to live. Uh, the first night, I helped my brother find his missing friend. We've, yes, he w- he worked in one of the buildings next to the explosion sites. I really hope. I really hope none of our loved ones, none of the people listening in, will ever have to endure anything remotely close as to looking for a missing loved one, not knowing if they're alive or dead, and then having their mother walk into a morgue the next day to identify the body of her own son, whose only mistake was that he loved his family too much not to emigrate from his homeland.
1: It's so sad, so touching. Lebanon did not deserve this at all. There's no words to describe what you guys have been through. It's just so scary how worthless the human life has become. We can talk about this forever and yet it won't be enough to describe the pain you've been through. So shall we change the subject and talk about your expertise a little? You were a very dominant player at the trash crisis that Lebanon went through a couple of years ago
0: yeah sure in 2015 we had an enormous uh trash crisis um which is just you know saying this i can i can't help but just put like right now my hands are on my face and i'm just thinking about how much the lebanese people endure at the hands of this Corrupt, murderous, incompetent, garbage-ridden oligarchy that is ruling us. Just five years ago, before Corona, before the explosion, before the economic and financial before and financial crisis, before the hyperinflation, before the fact that we couldn't like mo- like sixty percent of the Lebanese people uh, have reached. Um, have reached poverty uh, before before any of that. We had to like, we had to walk over trash in order to walk into our homes because the government suddenly had nowhere to put the trash. (laughs) This is five years ago. We had a trash crisis. Beirut had mountains and mountains and mountains of trash all over its streets. And it was, the most infernal experience to, uh, uh, to, to, to the Lebanese people to see that now it is reaching our homes. It's reaching our homes. Like that was the first experience of them being just like the literal trashiness of our corrupt leadership has reached the doorstep of our homes. We walk out of our home, you have to hide your nose and you have to like walk over the trash. This is what they did to us because they have no, no um, long term plan for how to do anything in this goddamn country. <laughs> that, that's how incompetent they are. They literally ran out of space. They have no strategy, no long term view. Every country in the world, to a certain degree, has a type of strategy of dealing with trash. It, not, it might not be great, but there's a type of strategy. You have landfilling you have recycling you have composting you have something right we Mm. had nothing nothing we had one company that was taking the trash and putting them in a landfill in one area of beirut that was what they were doing nothing else they say you know they say that there was a type of recycling and composting going we all knew eventually that that was a pile of bs that was not what was happening suddenly the people who live in the area of the landfill decided that they were done. They were done being the garbage of Lebanon. We don't want to take everybody's garbage anymore. We're done. It's been, it's been decades that we're doing that. We don't want to do that anymore. So they protested and, then, and the landfill actually had been so overfilled. It's been so overfilled that that landfill was supposed to be an emergency landfill back in 1998. By 2015, it was still operating like it was supposed oh. to be an emergency landfill that will only do its thing for three years. It was still operational by 2015. So the residents, uh, the, the residents uh, said, you know, we're done and actually the landfill is overfilled. And suddenly I'm like, OK, we have no more space. So what did they do in the end? How did they resolve it? Oh, they struck another contract of corruption with another one of their lackeys and they, they found another land and they're doing the same formula.
1: <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. Okay.
0: I get it. Out with them all, Pelin. This is the, this is what we are striving. All of those who have taken to take the streets. In 2015 we took to the streets, but we did it more forcefully in 2019 out with them all there is a slogan that says out with them all in arabic out with them all
1: mm. yeah well every country has its problems but this is yeah this is very striking
0: we we we, we want to reach the guinness book of world record of the
1: most <laughs> government so that's no i'm sure i'm sure people like you will change the destiny of your country Wow, that's, that's such a nice
0: thing to hear. Thank you.
1: Sarah, as we're coming near to the close of the session, I do want to ask you a little more fun question. Your life is about debate. When do you feel, feel an adrenaline rush? Is it your debate time or is it out on the streets protesting? What is more exciting for you?
0: Oh, that's a good question. That's a very good question. I think I have my best shot of adrenaline um when i create something uh like i write an article or i just give a talk or i um i just basically post my uh creativity in a in a um, in a sociopolitical sense and i and i start receiving um feedback from people or like um comments from people that's my that's my most joyful adrenaline rush
1: good 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 and one last one if you had one superpower what would you have wanted to do with it
0: wow i actually have the answer to that oh (laughs) i wasn't expecting that yeah and i i will tell you if i had a superpower my dear pelin it would be to dissolve hurt in people and take Mm -hmm. away the pain Uh, behind their eyes I should have
1: guessed yes and
0: spread restfulness and love in their minds with just a thought that has been my fantasy since I was a child I used to fantasize as a child when we came to war torn Lebanon I used to fantasize uh, especially when we would take car rides I would look out the window and I would say this is actually a really good story because that ties everything together Um, I had read a book when I was a child about about a, a, a child who had a um, type of power in his thumbs, that whenever he put his thumbs in the ground, a flower would come out or a tree would come out. And I had read that story when I was, you know, whatever, six, seven years old. And I would fantasize that I would, everybody would go to sleep and I would wake up at night and I would walk all the streets of Beirut putting my thumb in the ground and then the next day everybody would wake up and they would see so many flowers and so many trees in war-torn Beirut and everyone's life would be better. This was my fantasy as a child. Wow, what a
1: dream. Even when you're strolling through the streets of Lebanon now, you still do smell that war. I think every Lebanese would prefer this dream to be their superpower. Okay, now... We're coming towards the end of our podcast, and I will now ask you a question that will be repeated for all my guests. You know, our podcast is called The Reset, because I wanted to have guests that I believe will change the world just like yourself, everyone who's very special at their expertise and who are really active and passionate about their field. And as the post-COVID era, we have the chance to reset our lives and the world itself. So what does Reset resemble to you? What feelings does it evoke?
0: For me, Reset is, I believe that humankind is actually a kind species. I believe we are truly compassionate. I believe we have a compassionate gene inherent to all of us. If you take a look at children, um, you would see that their vulnerability and their compassion overrides everything else. And I truly believe that angst and, and, and the torturous um, feelings and meanness and all of that is learned. So I I would love it if we could reset our humanity back to our very origin, which Mm. is our compassion and our kindness and resolve all of our issues from that feeling. Because I really believe that we are not a bad, violent, destructive, selfish species. I believe we become that due to the pain we feel in our lives. But if only we could reset and safeguard the compassion and beautiful vulnerability that we have in ourselves as children and take that to our adult matters, I think, I hope we can reset and become a really beautifully compassionate, enlightened species. What a beautiful way to
1: end this session, Sarah. Thank you so much. I don't want to say anything more to those words and leave our listeners with this feeling. Thank you so much for joining me. This was a privilege for me and I loved it. Thank you, Sarah.
0: Thank you, Feline. I love you and I loved it. And thank you to all the listeners. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I really hope I really hope we will reset together.
1: Thank you for listening to us today. Sarah was our first guest of the reset podcast series. And we hope to continue this way. Hope you enjoy it.